Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about materials, the making instinct and a craftful life. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of my Curiosity Cabinet, whether you are a new or returning listener. It's been quite a while since I stopped by to have a chat with you. A combination of tennis elbow, a few workshops, several accidents and the seasonal demand of vegetable growing have kept me off air for a while. But I've still been making at a gentle pace and thinking a lot about my making and how it fits in with my efforts to live a more environmentally and ethically considered life. As always, you can find me on Instagram as Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet, and that is with underscore between each word, and on Ravelry as Meg, aka Mrs M, and that is with a hyphen between each word. As always, I will link this information and anything I mention in the podcast in the show notes, which are available on my website, mrsmscuriositycabinet.com, or in the Ravelry group of the same name. So what do I have in store today? Well, this episode is a little different to my previous ones, as it's the first time I have a guest on the show. Several months ago, I received a Ravelry message from Aidan, a knitter, and a fascinating podcaster known as The Knitting Monk. He wanted to share details of a book he thought might be of interest to me. The Knitting Monk publishes a wonderful video podcast that you can find on YouTube. He and I started podcasting roughly around the same time. And, totally independently from each other, we had decided to bring an environmental and ethical curiosity to our respective podcasts. I only discovered his podcast late last year, on the recommendation of another knitter, but I was thrilled to discover him. I was so excited to hear a crafting podcaster approaching issues like materiality, resource usage, and the process and psychology of making in a direct manner. As we explore similar issues from a slightly different perspective, his musings have given me lots of food for thought and development for my own making practice. In light of this shared interest, it comes as no surprise that the book Aidan mentioned was in my pile of reading material, so it jumped up my priority list. Before I had even finished the first chapter, I knew this book would be a fabulous starting point for a conversation, so I dropped Aidan a line. How would he feel about joining me for a chat about craft, how traditional crafts are about more than just making, by Alexander Langlands? This podcast episode is that conversation. As Aidan is based in the US, the conversation was recorded over Skype, so the sound quality is slightly different to that of my usual podcasts. But I hope this won't detract from your listening pleasure. Also, as it is a discussion, it is more informal and off-the-cuff than my usual podcasts, which I prepare with quite detailed lists. In this vein, I have not edited out every um and ah either, as I didn't want to interrupt the flow of conversation. Similarly, I have not edited out the giggles and laughter, as I wanted to give you a flavour of how jolly the chat was. If you follow the Knitting Monks podcast, Aidan will also be posting the whole conversation on YouTube. And if you don't follow him, I would definitely encourage you to do so. His making includes some fabulous knitting projects, as he is an absolute wizard with cables. He, like me, is also learning to sew his own wardrobe, and recently made a very dapper-looking waistcoat sewn entirely out of waste and reclaimed fabric. And he always shares thought-provoking perspectives on a handmade life in an encouraging and inspiring, but also very joyous way. So I hope you are settled in with a cuppa and a whip and enjoy this episode. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on what we are discussing. And if you've read the book, please do share any ideas or thinking that resonated with you.
It's my absolute pleasure to welcome Aidan, also known as The Knitting Monk, to the podcast to have a conversation about a book that resonated with both of us. We start the conversation with brief introductions. My name is Aidan. I'm uh, known as The Knitting Monk on social media, and uh, I have a, a podcast called A Maker's Pilgrimage on YouTube. I'm a, a brother at Holy Cross Monastery in New York, in the Hudson Valley, about 90 minutes north of New York City, and I'm really engaged in the intersections between contemplative spirituality, ecology, and fiber arts. I really, uh, I, I have really, really enjoyed Meg's podcast um, and connecting with her on uh, social media as well. And so I, I was very excited when she asked me to have a conversation about this book that I think she and I both got a lot out of. So I, I'm looking forward to where that conversation goes. I'm Meg. I'm based in the UK. So there's a obviously a difference in our accents, but that's not going to stop us having a meaningful chat. I am known on social media mostly as Mrs. M or Mrs. M Curiosity Cabinet. I am a writer and a maker with a particular interest in the material world, the psychology of sustainable consumption and environmental behaviour change. I publish an audio podcast which is called Mrs. Mrs. M's Curiosity Cabinet and it's a podcast in which I explore my own making and how I juggle my love of materials and making with my environmental and ethical concerns. And I probably should also mention that for many years I worked on energy and water projects and that I very much read this book, Craft by Alexander Langlands, from that perspective as much as from the perspective of my own craft, craft practice. We should probably... Um, mention the book that we're going to have a conversation about because as is often yes. the case <laughs> as is often the case these books go under different names depending on where you are so, yes so, um so here in america uh the copy that i got a hold of is called and and this is i mean i would love for you to pronounce this title <laughs> for me how do you say the word with, with from a British a British point of view, this is this is a bit of a pondersome one because the the book is the title of the book is spelt C R A E and it's a joined A E F T. Now that vowel sound no longer exists in modern in modern English. Um, as a sort of a really geeky person who actually did study Old English a long time ago, I went back to my sources, <laughs> and that didn't really throw much light on it. It suggests that the the the, the joint the uh, joint a e sound is an a, uh. um, so you might say craft um, as it would be pronounced by somebody in the north of the UK. So maybe somebody from uh, from um, uh, Northumberland or, or Yorkshire or Lancashire. But that said, there's both a long and a short vowel sound in Old English, so it could be craft and it could be craft. So I don't think we need to die in a ditch about what the what the pronunciation is. <laughs> but it's not craft. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> well, so the, the American title then would be um, Craft, an Inquiry into the Origins and True Meaning of Traditional Crafts. Um, and it has a sort of 
green cover with the, uh, some wood wood blocks on it. It has a it actually has a much more appealing cover than the than the European slash English version, which is <laughs> craft. How traditional crafts are about more than just making. And uh, my my copy has a bee skep, which once we get into the discussion is actually quite relevant, but it's not nearly yes. as um, as tantalizing as I think the American cover. I, I actually I have to say I mean I think that the um, the American title gives you more of I think gives you more of a sense of what the book is really about. I agree um, there. I agree there. Because. I mean, the, the, uh, all of the words in it, and inquiry, origins, and the true meaning of traditional crafts, the whole book plays out as a kind of experiment, if you will, that Langlands tries to learn as many of these traditional crafts as he can, and to discover something. Um, he, well, he comes into it with a sense that, that we've lost something, and he wants to sort of figure out what it is that we have lost, and it really is an inquiry, and then he, he discovers a greater meaning beyond the parts of, of the crafts themselves. Absolutely. And I think it's probably also just uh, from an expectation management perspective for anybody who might be considering reading the book, I think it's also quite useful to just um, explore or, or say something briefly about the types of crafts he looks at. He definitely goes back to a meaning of craft that predates the arts and crafts movement of the late 19th century. And although he looks at things like weaving and pottery, he's very much more concerned about the, the making in a way that, that basically uh, sustained human, human life and developed settlements um, for, for millennia. So he looks at what we would probably call old... Um, rural activities rather than just objet dark types of craft. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And I thought that, um, I mean, it's in that sense, it's, it's quite intriguing that this book has been taken up by the online fiber arts community. I know so many people who are reading it and talking about it. Um, I've talked about it on my podcast. I know, I know some other folks have as well. And it really, uh, he does have a whole chapter on uh, uh, spinning, weaving, knitting, mm -hmm. um, working with various kinds of wool, but he does situate that activity within a much larger framework of sort of homesteading, where you're raising sheep, you're then um, shearing them, you're spinning the wool, you're making your clothing out of it. Um, I mean, everything he does kind of comes back to the um, sustenance of the family in a home. And I think, I, I wonder sometimes if part of the reason so many of us are engaged in fiber arts and there's such a flourishing fiber arts community is because... As was bound to happen, there was a lot of interference on Skype, so we rejoined the conversation once the snowy effect had settled down. I, I think that it's intriguing that this book has been so popular with the fiber arts community online, particularly because it, fiber arts are such a small piece of what Langlands is exploring here, um, but also of all of the crafts that he um, engages and describes in the book, the fiber arts activities are really 
the only crafts that could be practiced in most or many sort of contemporary uh, homes. I mean, most people um, don't have the space uh, to build a step beehive and keep bees in that way, or most, you know, many people don't have hedgerows that they need to maintain um, or access to roofs that need to be thatched and, and all of that kind of thing. And so it's almost as if fiber arts is really the last outpost um, for for many of us um, for engaging in sort of making things by hand and the kind of knowledge that comes from that practice. I think one of the things that sort of, I, I mean, I, I would agree with that. And I think one of the things when I was sort of reflecting on it and I was looking at my, my own practice and I was looking at sort of my friends within the fiber arts area, what I, what I would say is in, in some ways the rediscovery of craft through the fiber arts is, has almost led to the fiber arts becoming the gateway drug for rediscovering craft full stop. Because I see yes. lots, I see yeah. lots of, um, um, makers that I know myself and others who I sort of listen to who are bloggers or vloggers or podcasters and you see you see it almost you know discovering the the agency that that comes through that that um that craft and that sort of selection and that that sort of thinking about materials and that selection of materials almost leads to a desire to explore other ways in which to bring that enrichment into into um, our lives be it through through, for example, fermenting or, or community gardening, vegetable growing, etc. So I sort of like to I like to look at the fiber arts as a bit of a gateway drug. <laughs> I think that's a, a wonderful way to put it. Um, and you're actually touching on one of the pieces in the book that I found. Um, sort of the most engaging, mm -hmm. and it comes pretty early mm -hmm. on in the book. Um, it's, he, he begins to talk about what he calls an illiteracy of power. Um, and he's, he says um, on page 11, I'll just read a, a quotation here, a short quotation on page 11. He says, we're increasingly constrained by computers and a pixelated abridgment of reality that serves only to make us blind to the truly infinite complexity of the natural world. Most critically, our physical movements have been almost entirely removed as a factor in our own existence. Now all we seem to do is push buttons. And, and he kind of, he uses that sort of way of thinking as a jumping off point to really ask the question, what do we lose when we're no longer engaged in making things with our own hands, um, in being in relationship with the natural environment and finding ways to um, manipulate, but in a respectful sense, rather than to um, uh, consume but really to be in relationship with the natural world and to use the materials of the natural world to, um, to solve problems that we have as human beings. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. I think that, I think that is sort of, um, th that and probably his definition of craft is probably the, the sort of the kernel of the book, the essence of the book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things, that I, one of the sort of quotes that I thought was, um, particularly relevant in that context and it comes much further in the book when he was talking about one of the examples is he says something like it's not that we've lost these ancient skills it's worse than that it's that we've, uh, we've lost the conception of these skills and what they can do for us 
by you know, so by being so reliant on on computers and outside technology and everything being provided at the at, you know at the at the push of a button or at the swipe of a of a credit card we've lost that we've not only lost the instinct and the capacity and the, and the agency to make we seem to have lost the um the inclination to make the inclination to go out and find out how we you know how do we identify the problem how do we how do we identify how do we spot resources? How do we find a way to, to make a solution ourselves rather than being so reliant on on technology, on others producing? Yes, absolutely. Um, and and um, and you, when you think about all of the sort of creativity that we lose in those kind of uh, very fast-paced, mostly digital kind of engagements and decision making um and and the environmental cost is extraordinarily high um rather than sort of looking at what are the resources that are available to me right now in the material world right in front of me and how can i use those to to solve the problems that i have um, the impulse is to go and to buy something new um that will replace whatever it is that's broken um I've been. I've noticed that in my own practice recently, and that, um, for instance, I'm working on a quilt right now, and um, I, I had the idea to make a blue and white quilt initially, and uh, I realized I didn't have enough blue fabric scraps to make a blue and white quilt and i thought well i could go to the fabric store and buy more fabric for this but then it hit me the whole point of quilting is to use these little scraps that you have from all of your other projects um so then i looked at the the other fabric scraps that i have right here and rather than go out and buy new things um to use the materials that are available to me and there's a different it's not going to be the perfect kind of vision that I had in my head of this quilt, but it's a, a sort of more real and creative engagement with materials that will come out with something beautiful. And the beauty, the necessity is a part of the beauty. It's not um, sort of the flawed, quote unquote, the, the imperfections of it, um, not meeting this ideal, which is really a fantasy rather than a grounded sort of material thing. Um, that's all a part of the beauty of the final project. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. I mean, my, the area where I very much have that sort of sense of it's not going to be picture perfect, it's not going to be Instagram worthy, but it's going to be a real expression of my creativity is in my garden, which is basically a patio with delusions of grandeur full of... <laughs> full of recycled scavenged pots and and, and stalks and I, I don't go out and buy buy bamboo canes for for my, for, for um, all my beans I'll, I'll make do with old bamboo canes and and canes that I've chopped in you know, and cut down here there and everywhere to try and you know, create things for things to grow up and to use a vertical space in this very constrained garden. <laughs> But in many ways, that is what what mankind has done down the centuries. You know, it's 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 the act of making something out of nothing, or making more out of nothing. Yes, absolutely. And and I really think, um, I mean, for you and I in particular, are are really engaged in questions of ecology and sustainability, um, and oftentimes the more um, 
economically viable mm-hmm. solution, which is to use what you have on hand rather than to buy something new so you're not spending more money, is also the more ecologically viable solution. So you're not going out and buying more virgin fabric for a project. You're not going out and buying more sort of constructed bamboo canes for your garden. Um, and again, it's not going to meet some sort of fantasy picture of an ideal garden or an ideal um, quilt. But in the end, actually, it has a, a human beauty to it um, that an ideal couldn't possibly have. It, it has a, both the human beauty and also it's... it's... I suppose it's in, in, inherently visceral because we as human beings, you know, what got us from, from, you know, the caves to where we are now was our ability to, to gather, to find resources, to imagine them differently. It's, it, it's innately human. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think actually, I think Al actually says that somewhere in the book that um, we humans are more than just makers. We are, we are resource ga- ga- gatherers. We are creatures who can who can know our our environments and see the potential of it yes yes he does say on page i have in front of me here um page 22 he begins he says um uh, when our lives once comprised an almost unbroken chain of movements and actions mm-hmm. as we interacted physically with the material requirements of our existence, today we stare at screens and we press buttons. When we made things, we accumulated a certain kind of knowledge. We had an awareness and an understanding of how materials work and how the human form has evolved to create from them. With the severance of this uh, from this ability, we're in danger of losing touch with a knowledge base that allows us to convert raw materials into useful objects. And hand, eye, head, heart, body coordination that furnishes us with a meaningful understanding of the materiality of our world. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I thought was, was very relevant, which goes to to sort of the definition of, of, of craft as opposed to craft is that he um, he highlights that today we consider the traditional production of a product as the craft, but it is the correct use of these implements in the field that represent the craft, the longer trajectory of production and use within its wider socioeconomic, uh, its wider socioeconomic context. So it's the, it's the production and use, which is something that sort of, from my environmental life to site, you know, life cycle analysis, I really love because it's not just about you know the the joy of making it. It's about you know where do you resource the materials, how do you make it, and once you've made it, how do you use it, and how do you eke out the maximum use from that from that object? Yes, absolutely. And then obviously I, I the often, decay at the end. Go, Sorry. Go ahead. And obviously, you know how the, how we, how do you dispose of it, or what do you do with it at the end of its 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 cycle? And uh, in terms of what you do with it at the end of its natural cycle, if it's an object that is made from natural mm-hmm. materials, then it can return to the earth and be the sort of source of other natural materials that were, will come along and and be used for other. Um, crafts um, to the extent that we're using synthetic materials um, those will not break down for quite a long time um, to be used for for other um, materials for for making yeah 
yeah, I mean that's that's one of the key things from an environmental perspective, but also just from a general uh, general pleasure uh, perspective. I've I've done quite a bit of reading on on the topic of slow fashion and the craft of use, and um, there's a lot of uh, anecdotal evidence that people that, that, that the garments that people generally appreciate and value and treasure are those that are made out of natural material materials. They're made out of wools and cottons and linens. So there is some kind of almost inherent sensory knowledge that these are happier mediums with which to work. You um, you mentioned earlier that. Um, you're quite interested in what we've lost due to this disengagement with the material world, with the craft, with craft in, in its sort of wider meaning, and the the sort of the stronger focus on on the digital world. Is there anything in particular in that context that you wanted to sort of tease out? Well, uh, as I mentioned before, Langland's focuses on this idea of an illiteracy of power. Mm -hmm. And I found that to be one of the most engaging ideas in the, um, in, in the book. Um, I certainly, from, from my own um, sort of grounding in contemplative Christian spirituality, I have to wonder as we become less embodied and we're less connected to the sort of physical world, then what does that mean about um, what the Christian tradition would call the incarnation, um, which is really at the center of Christian spirituality? Um, so that's, I mean, that's kind of where I come from on this, but from a less religiously specific point of view, I... Um, I wonder, you know, as we as we're less identified with sort of material, uh, physical things, what does that mean about who we are as human beings? Because we are inherently tied into our bodies. Um, and um, just to ground it in, in the text here, he's talking about, um, I love the idea that he shares about craftiness. Um, mm -hmm. And I think you, you, you had a wonderful Instagram post about this too. But uh, he says on page 20, isn't someone who is crafty also someone who simply has a way of doing things that is different from our own? Like the witch, the crafty so-and-so is the outsider, the nonconformist, the maverick, the renegade. Their craftiness is about bringing together all their powers to get on in the world outside of the establishment, or perhaps even despite the establishment. If we don't already, should we not admire craftiness a little more? Um, and so he really presents this sense, that combined with the illiteracy of power, this sense that people who can do for themselves, who can um, engage with material reality and um, find what they need to um, survive or even thrive in the world, to express who they are creatively, um, are not beholden to kind of the marketers and the corporations um, and, you know, the sort of establishment um, social norms and all of that to um, really define who they are. And so just to give a, a concrete example from my own, uh, my own life and fiber practice is that I find that um, they're really, as, as a man who is making um, clothes for myself, there really are not a lot of resources for my body. 
um, in in the kind of knitting and sewing communities. There are more in the knitting than in the sewing communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm able, because of my growing skill set um, and imagination, I've taken to looking at patterns that are designed for women's bodies and asking how I could modify them to fit my body. Um, and so I I'm, have actually been making what are quote-unquote women's patterns um, for myself. Now, if I was um, beholden to like a very strict kind of social norm of gender expression, um, then I wouldn't feel uh, empowered to make those kind of choices. But because I'm not, and because I have the skills to make my own clothes, I can dress in the way that I find flatters my body and fits my tastes. Um, and I know that especially in the, in the queer community, that is a really powerful thing for, um, especially for sewists and also for some knitters to be able to make clothes that fit their body and also express who they feel themselves to be in a way that the wider culture doesn't really hold up ideals for. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think that touches very much on one of the well, one of the many things that has been lost due to this disembodiment of, with the material world, and is being slowly rediscovered. Is you touched upon that ability to make something that fits both your body and your style, and certainly what I've noticed in particularly amongst not not I'm not so familiar with the sewing community community, but particularly amongst the sort of knitters come sewers who sort of people who have seen what you can do th- uh, through knitting and then want the same of their of their woven clothes, is we, a lot of us we start out with just basically learning the skills, rediscovering the skills you know that, that our grandparents may have had, our parents may have had. But very quickly, we then want to sort of delve further into a level of understanding what different materials do in different contexts, what material, different materials work for us, how to tweak patterns so that they actually fit us. And they, I certainly sense that there is this sort of this opposition of, on the one hand, um, extreme excitement about the potential of, of, this, of this power, of this agency to make something that works for us, but also partly a frustration because we're still having to throw off that, the almost ingrained, well, if we need something, we're going to buy it. If we need something, we're going to get, get it and it will be ready and it will be done. So we're having to learn the patience to, to, to learn, to, to not just learn the skills, but to gain the experience of the material, to gain the experience of what we actually want when we've got some choices. Because in reality, if you're buying things on, off the peg, you don't really have any choice about it. it. It is what it is. It will suit or it won't suit. It will wear or it won't wear. But when you've actually got the skills and the scope to try and to try and make something that suits you and you've got all these choices, you also need to be gentle and kind and patient with yourself to allow yourself to, to gain the experience to be able to make informed choices. That is so true. I mean, it can be very easy to... Um, I find for myself, I'm often uh, burdened by the um, the sort of um, instant gratification mentality, even though I'm making these things by hand for myself, uh, I, I can often get into the place of, I want to get this done as, as quickly as possible, um, 
and so, so that I can move on to the next project, on to the next project. Um, when really, if we're looking at, as you mentioned earlier, if we're looking at the not just the finished product, but the sort of longevity of uh, of the item once it's done, the whole life of um, of this this object that we're crafting. Um, then, what does it matter if I spend two extra weeks making a sweater for myself that I'm then going to spend the next 40 years darning and um, wearing, um, hopefully. Um, Must permitting. Then what, then <laughs> what, is, what is two weeks, you exactly. know, in, exactly. in that context? Exactly. And the other thing that I, that I sort of um, kept coming across throughout the book when he sort of explores different, different types of crafts was something that I certainly know from my own experiences. He focuses on, tradi traditionally, the, 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 the craft involves not just the making but the resourcing of materials. And, and the resourcing is in, is in itself a long, quite a long-term laborious part of the process. But with it comes comes an efficiency, an efficiency about a what you, how much you need, and b how you're going to use it to maximum effect, and that is something that I've certainly, I certainly on a, on, a, on an intellectual level appreciate, but also I found that in my own experience that you know with that building of that skill set, so you can look at a pattern, you can say, well, I don't know, three yards that strikes me as an awful lot for what I know of how of what pattern, uh, pattern construction works like, or you know, two two thousand uh, yards of of of, of iron weight, iron weight wool that strikes me as a bit toppy for this particular type of sweater. Let me think this through again, and let me make an assessment as to whether this is a good use of resources. And I don't think it's until you actually start making, and it doesn't really matter what that making is, what that crafting is, whether it's you know whether it's cooking, whether it's gardening, whether it's woodworking, or, or fiber arts. Is once you start to work with things, you can be much more critical about assessing what somebody else tells you you need in order to get a job done. Yes, that's absolutely right. Absolutely, and also, I mean, I think to um, the 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 sort of different kinds of crafts that he outlines in the book, you, you wouldn't find yourself stockpiling materials no. way beyond the use, uh, way beyond what would be useful. Yes. Um, for one thing, many of the materials that he's using in these projects are, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking they, they for? They decay, uh, don't they? They, they have a limited yes, shelf yes, life. Yes, yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> they decay, so you couldn't really stockpile them. Um, but it it really um, it it highlights for me the extent to which um, I am buying yarn yeah. because I want to have the yarn because it's pretty, and the extent to which I am buying yarn because it is a tool that is useful for me to make something that is then useful to keep warm um, and to last me um, for for quite a number of years um, absolutely it really the, the materials why do I have them and it's fine to like pretty yarn and absolutely. Want pretty yarn, but um, absolutely I know that we've, we've both talked about this on our respective uh, podcasts about the sort of the concept of stash and the nature of stash and and yes mm -hmm. Um, it, it is part of that. It is part of that sort of appreciation of the input as well as the output. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, I think it is. Um, and that's why I think there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with having extra wool around. Um, it helps you, well, it can help insulate your house if you have enough of it. But um, also, it, it, uh, it does give you that sort of buffer of comfort because I think what um, Langlands, neither Langlands or you or I are advocating going back to some kind of subsistence culture. You know, we, we recognize the importance of, of comfort and joy and pleasure. So, so we're not trying to override that but it's just bringing an awareness of of of, of where the where, where where's the line between useful and unnecessarily abundant yes exactly it's about coming into greater balance mm-hmm. i think um in the same way that you know langlands is not arguing for a return to a pre-industrialized culture um, he's not saying throw away your computers and um, get rid of your cars and that kind of thing. Um, he makes the point at one at one point in the book. I don't have the quotation highlighted, but he says essentially that um, a, a crafty way of doing something would be that you use exactly as much. Mm-hmm. Um, as you need, and you would never use a mechanical object or tool when a hand tool would do. You go for efficiency in uh, in an output of energy. Absolutely, so yes. That's what that's that's I, one of the ones that I really loved. One of one of the quotes that really stayed with me. Yes, yeah. it's not about using as much technology and resources as possible. It's about using just enough. And that's yes. very much, um, I, I feel, a concept that is quite alien to us and has become alien in a very, very short period of time. And we're only talking about, I don't know, five, six decades that mind shift has happened. It really, I mean, we really do have a problem with enough in mm. our sort of, certainly in the Western world, Um um, and I can speak to American culture much better than British culture. I, you could speak to that yourself, but we have a tendency um, on that uh, to, to that as well. I mean, yes, both in both in the UK and the and, and mainland Europe. Um, whilst some of the statistics are not quite as terrifying as some of the statistics coming out of the US, there is generally that um, that problem with enoughism or lack of enoughism. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, on the issue of of um, of sort of the illiteracy of power much later in the book quite towards the end he he looks at another aspect of that illiteracy and which which is something that really appeals to me based on my background he actually says 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 quite blatantly that as a society we don't really know what energy is all about because we're so reliant on machineries and we're so reliant on energy flows at the flick at the flick of a, a button we've lost any awareness of what power actually means in, in in everyday realities and i thought there was a particularly wonderful example that he used he said he said for example we don't appreciate the value of a welsh blanket because we are never really cold enough to really appreciate the benefit of it and i think that sort of sums up that the, the, the fact that we're not necessarily talking about going back to pre, you know, pre-industrial era, but just bringing some kind of awareness of when you start to do things with your own body, you, bec- you get a much better feeling of what goes into something, what it takes to, to um, produce, produce fleece to then knit into a, into a sweater, what it takes to grow, I don't know, uh, several pounds of potatoes, what it takes to, to, to put bread on the table, 
Yes, I think that that's a really, really engaging uh, question. And and I, I think back to when I was first knitting and I wanted to make my first sweater. I think there was a part of me that thought, oh, well, making a sweater will be an economical uh, way of dressing. And, you know, I went out and I bought a sweater's quantity of yarn. And as any knitter knows, that's an expensive purchase, much more than you would pay for a brand new sweater at even sort of a Mm mid-level store. Um, And part of the reason for that is because you're actually paying the real cost of the materials um, in a way that when we buy um, sort of... um, you know, a, a, a sweater that's made halfway around the world by people who are working for pennies an hour um, using materials that were grown in ways that are, are cheap but not uh, beneficial to the to the planet and the climate. Um, we're actually not paying the full cost of that. Um, and I, I say all of that knowing that there are people who mm-hmm. cannot afford, because of their economic circumstances, who can't afford to go out and buy a sweater's quantity of yarn, but they can afford to go to you know, the discount store and buy a sweater that was made halfway around the world, yeah. and they need their children to be warm. Yeah. You know, so, so there are other realities that go into it. But I think to know that um, sometimes the choice to make something by hand really is to pay the full cost cost of making that item and having that item rather than to put off the cost onto the the planet or to other people also i I think if you really sort of delve into into that concept of you know i will invest time and and the money to make this jumper and it will last me 40 years you're not only paying the cost of the material and the environmental impact you're also actually prepaying for 40 years worth of wear so that's the other Mm -hmm. thing that is very true. That is very true. And I've heard you say on your podcast, I so appreciate it. You say have you said something at one point about how um, you try to to heat your home as little as possible in the winter, <laughs> and so you make a lot of wool garments to keep yourself warm in your in your home. Uh, and I think that's a wonderful that's a wonderful way of sort of looking at the choices in your life to say, you know, this is actually a choice. I don't have to have my home at 74 degrees Fahrenheit. I don't think you'd ever want it 74 Celsius, but, um, you know, I could actually just put on more clothing. Yes. I mean, this is partly peculiarly to me, but also it's a, a function of British ha- housing stock is notoriously poorly insulated. So uh, as my mother used to say, putting the heating on is like burning five, uh, five pound notes. <laughs> <laughs> so there is also just a basic thriftiness about it. Yes, <laughs> but that comes that goes back to what we what we said earlier that oftentimes the the ecologically minded choice is actually in the long run the, also an economic choice. Yes, you know the the thrifty way is, is usually the most environmental way. And one of the other things that I think is probably worth um, emphasizing with, with, with um, about this book is um, there are sort of numerous other books out on the market that look at craftsmanship and craft. And Langlands is not only slightly different in that he look, takes this sort of wider view of what craft is. Um, he also really embeds craft in landscape, in place. 
And I think that's relevant on a, on a, uh, on a number of levels. Um, on the one hand, it links you into seasonality and something that we certainly as knitters are aware of, aware of is, you know, is that if you want a particular type of yarn made from a particular type of breed, it's not just there available on demand. It takes time for the sheep to grow the fleece. You, you, for most sheep, you only have one shearing a year. So when that, when that supply of wool that makes a certain blend is done, it's done for the year. And if you want more of it, you have to wait until the next year. And the next year, the, the shearings from the same flock will not necessarily be exactly the same because it's it's dependent on on the grass, on the weather, on all these other sort of um, time and place based based um, factors. So reconnecting with craft, and once again, it doesn't really matter what the craft is, does sort of get you attuned to a the seasonality of things, but also the pla uh, the place based nature of things, and you're then looking at a world. A, a life that has much more diversity in it, which is very much in contrast to sort of the highly homogenized Western world that we currently live in. Yes, that struck me as well. And, and it provided something of a context and a solution mm -hmm. for, um, I think, for those of us who find ourselves inclined to multiple kinds of of craft, mm -hmm. as I know you do and I do, with knitting, sewing, quilting, gardening, writing, um, I sometimes find myself feeling like, when will I ever have the time to do all of these things? And some of the answer is that I don't have the time to do all mm -hmm. of them all of the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Langlands, sort of in his in his book, you get the sense of a life that is ordered over the course of a whole year. Yeah. So that the quilting and the knitting may be done in the winter when you can't be outside growing your food. You might tend your hedgerows at a certain time of exactly. year, build your skeps at another time of year. Uh -huh. So that there, there are all of these different kinds of engagement with the natural world that happen over the course of a year. And they all, they all actually contribute to one unified um, experience of life and they're all actually essential to that experience of life. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that. I mean, I've not been uh, particularly um, abundant in my podcasting of late because spring has finally arrived and I'm spending time in the garden because that's where, A, where I want to be when it's when it's nice weather and B, it's also, this is a time when the seeds, you know, the, the, the seed sowing and the, and the planting out and the nurturing and the tending of the garden just happens. It's, you know, it's, and, and then we'll hit, we'll hit high summer and it'll be too, too, too hot to spend too much time out there, but we'll be doing other, other crafts and then come the winter when all you want to do is bunker down. <laughs> That's perfect time for the quilting and the spinning. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. And the the other aspect to, to this that um, just to highlight it is to this line of conversation is that um, it, it reminds us when we're plugged into seasonality and to place, it reminds us that all of the materials that make up everything in our lives, um, even the most highly complex pieces of digital technology, yeah. are all made from the material resources of the planet yeah. that we live on. Um, and they all ultimately uh, uh, are derived from, from natural materials. Um, and those materials are not limitless. Yeah, there is an right. end to them. Um, 
Yeah, so no, so I, I find myself asking, you know, how do I, how, what choices can I make in my own life to come more in line with, um, with what the earth provides in its natural sort of abundance without consuming so much that there isn't enough left. Yeah, and I suppose that's, that, that's sort of the question that you're, or, or the project that you're almost left with at the end of the book. I mean, Langlands explores all these old rural crafts and, and you know, forms of homesteading, for want of a better word. How does it, you know, how is the book relevant to somebody living in in the in Europe, in in, in America, in the you know in the, in the sort of um, start of the twenty first century? You know, how do we find those pockets of making it relevant, and how can we, starting from where we are, broaden it out, you know, expand it out? Um, I mean, as I said earlier, I think very much that I view very, I view Viper Arts for a lot of people as a gateway drug, because there are so many. It just it just that that inquiry and that interest tips into other areas. I certainly know from looking at, for example, at my my sort of group of friends. Um, I know I know so many multi craftual talented people, and when we when we we, we meet, there is this almost like this informal economy of barter and it's not and I hate using the word economy because it isn't a like for like but you know it's, it's almost going back to old neighbor neighborliness you know one person will, will, will pitch up and and swap something that, that they've grown somebody else will, will offer something that they've you know some soaps that they've made from scratch to cut out half the pollutants that you find in a shop bought bar of soap somebody else will have been foraging and will have made jams or something so I certainly see that there is scope to bring some of this craftiness back in our own lives through through a pursuing different crafts, but also through connecting with people. I mean, there's a there's a real risk of going down sort of the self sufficiently and I'm going to go alone role, but actually crafts in the old sense were very much a, a, a communal way of living. It was a way of relying on each other's skills, on each other's know how. Absolutely, because. You know, we most people when you start asking them, you know, where did you learn to knit? Where did you learn to sew? Um, many many people learned those things in the context of their families and their family community, or they had a mentor. They had a, you know, they they connected with somebody who taught them this skill. Yeah. It's a it's a basis of human community and connection. Um, and many of us are doing that online now. Yeah. Um, and I think that has a lot of benefits and also some drawbacks um, as well. But but I know for me, it's been the community of people um, initially knitting that I found on Instagram that has gotten me into sewing yeah. and now into quilting. And because I... I would connect to these people who many of them knit, but they also did these other things. And I thought, oh, that looks really cool. Maybe I want to try that. Um, or that's a so natural. Ex- Sorry, go ahead. No, no, go, no, no. You go. You go or, ahead. Or you see somebody doing something which is actually a natural extension of what, what you're already doing. So it, it seems almost a, a, a no-brainer to incorporate it into your own practices in as far as possible. Yes, that's absolutely right. Like, I mean, from sewing to quilting is a very um, easy and intuitive leap because mm-hmm. what do I do with all this leftover fabric? Well, I turn it into something to keep me warm in the winter. Um, so, yes, that's it's absolutely right. I suppose it's. I mean, I, I, it's it's possible to get to 
go on endlessly about what we've lost due, due to the engagement with the digital world rather than the material world. But I suppose it's, uh, it's also only fair to build on what you've said previously and look at what what potential the digital world does offer us to um, to explore a more crafty, you know, to find, find expression for our own craftiness, to find ways to develop it. And I think the key is the community, the community that we've we, we found online. Um, one of the wonderful things that I'd like to point to is there, certainly in the, in the wool community, the knitting community has actually made it viable for small producers of wool, you know, producers who can't produce batches of wool that will, that will fill um, department stores. But that for them to actually find a market for their precious resource rather than it going to waste, and a, and a classic example of that is um, Daughter of a Shepherd. Um, yes. I mean, she you know, has the the flock that her father was tending. The fleece was was you know was sold for for less than pennies because it was brown and it was inadvertent commas scratchy, and many farmers who grow that kind of fleece they will bury it because it's just not what we not bury or burn it just because it's just not worth taking it to market it's not worth the production costs but but through the digital through the community of makers that has that has been able to sort of establish itself um online she saw that there was potential to make use of this this wonderful natural resource and in the process you know support livelihoods and support jobs in 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 a region that that is that that is sort of economically not doing particularly well so yes a digital technology can do a lot of harm but there is also potential for it to actually be a a catalyst for good as well yes it absolutely is i think the technology itself is neutral it's yeah. how we use it yeah, and how exactly. we engage it exactly. that is is helpful or not helpful. Um, I won't even say good or bad. It's just helpful or not helpful. And there's an amazing community online. I mean, you and I are chatting across an ocean about this book via digital technology, um, and we'll disseminate our conversation in in the same way and and in, in uh, engage other people in this conversation. And that's all thanks to digital technology. And I think it really goes back to that idea of craftiness yeah. that he's talking about, that this is, in some sense, the digital world now is like the street used to be yeah. for protests. This is how we can come together from our various places around the world and our various points of view and actually push for change that we'd like to see and begin to embody that change ourselves, but then also support others who mm -hmm. are, who are, who are pushing for, for changes to make the world a better place. Yeah, no, I would agree entirely. I, and, and, and I would say that, you know, we're, we're choosing to use technology in the same way that we might choose to use a pitchfork or to use our knitting needles. We, we, you know, we're seeing it as a tool rather than the means to the end. Right. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Okay. I mean, is there anything else you feel you'd like to share? Or should we just sort of um, see what, what listeners come back with? I would love to see what listeners come back with. I know there are a lot of people out there who are reading or have read this book, um, and I would love to, to hear from folks about sort of what was um, meaningful for them, what questions did it leave them with, what was challenging about it, because I think it would be hard to read this book and not feel some pushback against uh, the way that, that most of us live. 
and so what you know what what was coming up for folks when they read it mm-hmm. yeah and, and and how do they feel they're going to take up the baton of the challenge that he lays down yes absolutely okay. without all of the pressure of having to get it perfect but you know oh exactly it doesn't have to be perfect and it doesn't have to look instagrammable yeah, absolutely. In fact, in fact, in fact, we need we, we you know we're after we're after real flat lays, not 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 post flat lays. <laughs> yeah. The lighting doesn't have to be perfect. Yeah, muddy <laughs> muddy hands, totally acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate your. Um, inviting me to to engage with you around this book and many of the topics that um, both of us hold very dear not at all I mean I'm sure that we could actually we could actually talk till the cows come home it's almost a pity that, <laughs> that we're not sort of you know in the same town so we can do it over over a glass of wine or something but, that's um, right well I hope to be in London next year so I will let you know oh, when, I, when I'm coming out there and hopefully we can connect please do Thank you.